Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is February the 17th, 2017. This is episode 1955 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. That means it's an expert counsel show. And I've got a good portion of the expert counsel lined up for you today. Let me tell you what we're going to talk about today. Planning forage for rabbits and chickens and other animals with Darby Simpson. Dealing with Crohn's disease, Gary Collins. The ins and outs of rate swaps. What the heck is a rate swap? And why should you care? Gary, not Gary Collins, John Pugliano will tell you all about that. Why you should consider making your generator into a tri-fuel generator and how you might do that from Stephen Harris. The good and really not so good about M101 trailers from Tim Glantz from Old Grouse's Military Surplus. Drying mushrooms from Eric Estras. And I'm going to talk to you about jug fishing for catfish. It's a question that came in recently, and I'm kind of on a fishing kick right now. Guy says, I don't really talk about jug fishing. I have in the past, but uh, we'll do a little uh, 10-minute segment today on jug fishing for catfish. How to do it, why to do it, where to do it. And how to find out if it's legal where you're going to do it, because in some places it's totally legal. In other places, you're in deep shit if you do it and get caught. And in many places you can do it, but you got to know certain things that you got to do when you do it, or you can get in deep shit. While I'm not a fan of the government, I'm less of a fan of them when I'm doing something they say is wrong and I get caught doing it. Not because I thought they're stupid and just decided to be defiant, but because I really didn't know. So we're going to talk about staying legal with activities, especially fishing game activities, because game wardens tend to be really great guys overall, most of them, with no sense of humor. And I think it's because it's the one activity in law enforcement, especially on the hunting side, that everybody you talk to is equally armed. And it's amazing how that makes people get along well. And yet, there's not many of them shot, if you think about it. Almost like people that are responsibly armed are good citizens, even when they're caught doing bad things most of the time. Just something to think about as we get ready to do today's show. I want to remind you guys, expert counsel works like this. You send me an email. Please don't call your questions in for the expert counsel. Occasionally I get one. I usually send it to a council member, but it's, it's, it's more likely to get missed as a council question if you do that. Some of the calls just, you know, based on volume, don't get screened at all. Once we get to a certain amount of age on them and I've gone so far forward, I kind of leave them in an archive and <clears throat> sometimes I'll find one that's you know, a month old or something. And your expert council questions, email jack at the survivalpodcast.com, TSPC, expert in the subject line. My question is for expert council member, blah. Put their name in it. Please put their name in it. Okay? If you think it can go to two, you can say blah or blah. That way I'll find it when I do searches in the inbox. Okay? And then <clears throat> give me your question in one sentence. Hit return a couple times. And give me your details. If you follow that format, it will be more likely the expert council will know exactly what you're asking and then will use the details as necessary. And you'll know what you're asking and you'll clarify your question. All right, so that's the way to do it. Now, a couple updates. One, I need questions. I've had some coming in. I've been piecemailing them off to the expert council to string along the, the, the beginning of the year document. I gave everybody three, so it lasted longer than it was supposed to. But today, officially, I will be out of answers from the expert council. Anyway, a few questions are out there. I need questions. 
So if you have questions for the council, get them to me uh, this coming week. Uh, number two, expect this, though. You won't get an answer to your question until at least next Friday. Why? I, I was slacking a little bit on expert counsel because I wasn't going to do one today. Because right now I'm supposed to be in a truck heading south down to central Texas to kill pigs. And I'll be doing that now next week. What happened was we're working with a group on this one, and the guy leading the group uh, told another guy, this guy's talking to me, and somehow the date got changed, and it's actually next weekend, not this weekend. So we're going next weekend. So next weekend there'll be a TSP Rewind on Friday. So it'll be two weeks till you get your questions answered. But get me lots of questions And I will load the council up this round so that we're good, you know, maybe for, for 45, 60 days of, of answers. That way they can get their stuff done. Sometimes they got to do research. It'll help you. I, I don't think there's another thing like this available in the world of podcasting. Somebody may have done something like this, but I don't know about it, where we have this world-class group of 13 individuals you can ask questions to. Remember, you can always go to the Meet the Expert Council page under the About tab, see all the council members, and see what they can help you learn. All right, with that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Bob Wells Nursery has become my go-to for fruit trees, nut trees, and hard-to-find edibles. Their customer service is second to none, and they even provide a 10% discount for all MSB members. Check them out at bobwellsnursery.com today. You know, guys, I've been telling you about how Safe Castle Royal has everything for your prepping needs for over seven years now. Everything's a big word, but in this case, it's true. Of course, they have long-term storage food, water purification equipment, shelters, solar and wind components, and more. But hey, did you know they even have an amazing fold-down, bug-out bicycle? Yeah, they actually have two of those. For everything you could ever need as a prepper, and I do mean everything, check out safecastle.com today. And today's TSB Business Directory supporter of the day is My DIY Solar House. My DIY Solar House provides engineering consulting and solar installations for homeowners. Go to My DIY Solar House to learn more. You can learn more about them at the TSP Business Directory, and there will be a, uh, a link in today's show notes for them. And remember, your business can be featured in the directory for as little as $5 per six months. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1955, because the episode is 1955. I've got two from Alex Shrugged and one from Southpaw Ben. I have... Einstein's brain is missing, but make no assumptions. I also have Refusing to Move to the Back of the Bus by Alex Shrugged. And from Southpaw Ben, I have Blowing Up U.S. Commercial Airlines is Now Illegal. Guys, you guys are making this tough for me to pick one segment. It, it really is. I'm not even sure right now. I'm going to read Notable Births, and I thought I knew what I was going to do, and I'm going to think about it while I read Notable Births, the year in film and the year in music. Notable births, John Roberts, 17th Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, Mike Huckabee, Governor of Arkansas, Bill Gates, co-founder of Microsoft, Eric Schmidt, CEO of Novell, CEO of Google and his exec, uh, Chairman of Alphabet Inc., a conglomerate that holds various Google companies, Steve Jobs, who died in 2011 at age 56, co-founder and CEO of Apple and CEO of Pixar. You know, we're getting to a point now where when somebody was born in the year that was the episode and they're not with us anymore, It's a reminder to spend your dash wisely. Go do something with your time. Uh, in entertainment this year, in music, Eddie Van Halen, Billy Idol, and Reba McIntyre. Uh, Kate Mulgrew, who is Captain Janeway on Star Trek, is born this year. Penn Gillette from the magical team of Penn and Teller. Alex Shrug said, if you must have a favorite, favorite atheist, he's your man. 
Bruce Willis, TV's Moonlighting, Die Hard, The Fifth Element, Armageddon, and uh, The Sixth Sense. What was the one where they drilled? Armageddon, yeah. They said, what happens when you drill? I, I was doing directional boring at the time, and we were drilling in a lot of rock, and that became a favorite line of ours when we had, like, where's the progress? This is what happens when you drill, man. Um, Whoopi Goldberg, actress in the color purple, ghost sister act comedian, co-host of The View. I think calling her as a comedian is stretch. She's not very freaking funny nor talented. I think she's a, a propped-up actress by Hollywood myself. That's my opinion on Alex's. So you're in film. Mr. Roberts is, is uh, shown starring Henry Fonda as an XO who protects his crew from a vain and petty captain. Uh, Guys and Dolls, a musical starring Marlon Brando and Frank Sinatra. And The Seven-Year Itch with Marilyn Monroe and with a famous scene of the dress flying up. That happened this year. This year in music, 16 Tons by Tennessee Ernie Ford. You loan 16 tons, and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. That was actually still kind of a popular song in the 80s in the coal region of Pennsylvania. You can see why. Cry Me a River by Julie London. I cried a river over you. And Maybelline, Why Can't You Be True by Chuck Berry. None of them are the number one song, and we are crossing the bridge to the era of rock and roll in 1955. You'll find out at the end of this show uh, how that happens this year. In other news, electric power is produced from atomic energy. Arco, Idaho is where it starts. It's also the site of the first fatal reactor accident and the only one in the U.S. You know, nuclear power, I think, has some problems, all right? But when people talk about how dangerous it is, how many people were killed in the development of airplanes versus the development of nuclear reactors? Mm, just something to think about. Hovercraft is, inve hovercraft, hovercraft is invented using a vacuum cleaner and two tin cans. It's then classified as a government secret. Killing further development. I guess it's no longer a government secret because I remember my son had a physics class in high school and they built a hovercraft out of a leaf blower, a piece of plywood, and a tarp. It was kind of cool. Disneyland theme park and Disneyland hotel open for business. Also, the Mickey Mouse Club makes its debut in 1955. Uh, and Alex says events even more important than the above. They can't all get a mention. Something has to give Alex. You know, Alex, actually, I think that it's cool the way you guys do this. Because it's not necessarily that we need in these history segments the stuff that we all learned in high school. It's these unique things that nobody talks about and nobody remembers, I think, make this segment so cool. Anyway, oh, God, what am I going to read? Einstein's brain. It's too, it's too interesting of a story, even though it's not as historically significant. Uh, contributed by Alex Shrugged. I have finished my task here. Albert Einstein on his deathbed as he reviews his final calculations. The great physicist Albert Einstein is dead. His friend Dr. Zimmerman can't get away, so he calls on his colleague to perform the autopsy. Dr. Harvey walks into the morgue. It looks like a broom closet. In the refrigerator, the body of Albert Einstein. He's a famous man, so the autopsy must be done with care. There are flies buzzing around as Dr. Harvey begins the incision. The cause of death is a burst blood vessel. At this point, the autopsy should be over, but Dr. Harvey continues. It's difficult to know what inspires him to remove Einstein's brain. Perhaps it's professional curiosity or some lesser motivation. But when he leaves the morgue, Einstein's brain is missing. In, the press, in a press conference, Dr. Harvey declares that he is keeping the brain for scientific study. Einstein's son is shocked, so Dr. Harvey calls him to apologize and ask permission to study his father's brain. It's all for science, you see and a scientific paper will be written. The Sun grants permission, but as the years pass, no paper is forthcoming, and there are no legal precedents for recovering a missing brain. My take by Alex Shrugged. <clears throat> It's now 1997. A young woman is writing a book, leaving her husband, Michael, at loose ends. 
He writes magazine articles, and when he meets Dr. Harvey, now 84 years old, he asks about the brain. Dr. Harvey says he would like to return it to Einstein's granddaughter, Evelyn, before he is too old. In an inspired moment, Michael says, I could drive you, and thus begins one of the strangest road trips of all time, with Einstein's brain bobbing along in a Tupperware container. The book is called Driving Mr. Albert, and it's a hoot. I often use the book as an example of how the author will make assumptions about what the reader already knows. On a road trip, the author might mention a stop at a gas station, or maybe not. He assumes that everyone knows that cars need gas. But how long will that assumption hold as electric self-driving cars come online? Writing is permanent, but the meaning of words change. As we modernize, something will always be lost in translation, not just words and context, but skills, like driving. A few of us choose to remember and pass it on. So when that knowledge is needed, it will still exist. Kind of historically significant when you look at it that way, isn't it, ladies and gentlemen? Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking about this now, and I'm wondering how many things from this era, stories and movies and stuff, that when people look at them 30 years from now, they just won't get it. You know, people that are like 10 right now, even though they'll be 40 then, and forget about it, I'll just go, I, especially if it's something that was you know, made in the 80s. There's some good movies and stuff still, you know, from the 80s and 70s and 60s. But I think that there, even though there's a lot that's changed in there, there's a continuity of understanding. The technology leaps weren't such that we didn't understand the technology of the time. It, it, you know, when we watched uh, Lucille Ball in the kitchen, she didn't have a microwave, but we comprehended the, the, the absence of a microwave. And since so she was using a stove, which we still have, we comprehended the existence of a stove. But I wonder when we're no longer using certain technologies and we see them, if we'll even recognize their purpose. And if we don't recognize their purpose and we need something because current technologies fail, how screwed are we? It's kind of a survivalist prepper topic, isn't it? Preserving skills and knowledge. And that's what history is. And that's why when the idea for this segment came up, I embraced it. And when I embraced it, I, I first just started reading a few bullet points off Wikipedia. And Alex stepped up and started doing this. And again, I want to thank Alex for his work and South Bob Ben coming in here in the, in the, you know, the, the 20th century and, and, and helping out. I think it's a great idea. And if anybody ever feels like, I want to go back and flesh out more stuff on, on dates, no one's going to get upset. No one's going to get upset. A wiki is a duocracy. It's a meritocracy and a duocracy. Anyway. I also want to say that today you might want to go by and you might want to read Refusing to Move to the Back of the Bus because you probably think it's about Rosa Parks and it's not really. And it's a very interesting take on what you're thinking about and how it actually happened and how eventually it led to Rosa Parks, but how that was a setup. And you might want to read Blowing Up Commercial Airliners because it makes a very salient point about keeping law simplistic instead of complicated. Want to remind you guys once again about the Member Support Brigade or MSB. That's the main way that you can help support the show and the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast. When I put that program together almost eight years ago now, I wanted to always make sure that members got a return of their investment. I wanted to make sure that whatever they paid me, they got back more than that because I think that's just the smart way to do business. So I'd like to remind you about just two of the benefits you get as an MSB member today that give you basically a 100% return on your investment from day one. First, you get a, a free lifetime discount membership to Safe Castle Royal. Vic Rontala sells that every day for 49 bucks. 
Western Botanicals gives you their premium membership discount for one year for free. That would cost you 50 bucks. That's $99 return on just two discount membership programs that I get you as a supporting member of the MSB. So consider joining today to learn about all the other great benefits. Drop by the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, and to see all the ways you can sign up, scroll to the bottom of the page. Okay, guys, so let's go ahead and get into our first question for expert council members. We have one here for Darby Simpson on planting forage. Uh, for rabbits and chicken, coming from kind of a backyard standpoint, but also wanting to understand more about broad acre stuff, Darby, take it away. Hello once again, everyone. This is Darby Simpson of DarbySimpson.com and the Grass-Fed Life Podcast. Uh, today I'm calling in to answer a question from Kenneth, and his question revolves around what kind of uh, grasses and, and legumes and, and whatnot should he plant in his backyard for chickens and rabbits to graze on. And he was also curious, you know, what would uh, be planted on a larger farm scale for cattle, chickens, sheep, rabbits, etc. He wanted to know how I'd go about establishing pasture on bare earth versus how I would improve existing pasture with, uh, you know, more desirable uh, forage plants. So, you know, uh, currently Kenneth is uh, in, just in a suburban lot, but uh, one day he's kind of hoping to get out and get some land and, and have a bigger operation. So, uh, Kenneth, I got to tell you, the way I attack this is I, I never really think or worry about a, a chicken or a rabbit. And that's because when I'm planting grasses, I'm thinking about the main thing. And the main thing around here is cattle. So I'm really more focused on what do I need to plant for the cows so that uh, they will perform the best. Now, as it turns out, what works really well for cows is also going to work really well for your, your chickens and your, your rabbits. Now, to be clear, I have not raised meat rabbits. It's something that I'm, I'm kind of looking into a little bit. But right now, uh, it just sounds like it you know be one, one more iron in the fire. Uh, but I'm kind of educating myself a little bit on, on what they like to eat. Um, but, but what we plant, uh, which would, again, would work for chickens and rabbits, for, for our cattle is, is a mix. We're, we, we want a, a different mix of things that are going to work for, well for them, uh, that we're always going to have something that's going to uh, be maturing, Uh, no matter if we're talking about early April or all the way into uh, November. Uh, and the, the chickens kind of work around what we plant for the cows. I, I will tell you that the chickens really like anything that's a legume. So your clovers, particularly alfalfa, things of that nature, that's really what they tend to graze on. They'll eat the grasses a little bit, some of the fescues and things like that, but When we're talking about pastured chickens, what you've got to realize is if that you are an absolute rock star, you might maybe get 20% of their intake off of grass. Now, there are some different models out there where you can really push them, and I've heard some people say that they get 50% of their forage, uh, you know, from, from grass for their chickens. Maybe if you're doing a heritage reed bird or something like that, I'm talking about a fast-growing meat bird that makes sense in an Excel spreadsheet to farm full-time so that it cash flows and I can make a living. So I am talking about an older strain of Cornish cross that has not been doctored with in the last 30 years. Um, and what these guys love are legumes, okay? So what we've got planted and, and how I and how I planted uh, uh, kind of what you're talking about here where you've got a clean slate, you, you've got land that's got nothing on it in the suburban lot and how do you go about planting it? 
Now you're, not, you're obviously not going to do this in your little suburban lot, but I went and rented a, a, a what's called it's a, a grass drill. Okay, and it's got little discs on it, and all they do is they disc the soil deep enough to make a furrow, and it's got boxes and you on top, and in these boxes you put in a mix of, of you know whatever you want. Uh, you, you can plant annuals or, or perennials or whatever, but you put your grasses in one box, and you, you you would put your legumes in another box, and then they've got a third box that you would use for like larger annuals, like if you wanted to plant oats or or something like that for for animals to graze on. So uh, we we had a mix of about eight different things. There was a couple different types of fescue in there. We had some timothy, some orchard grass. We had a perennial Italian ryegrass, which is just amazing, particularly if you have cattle because it comes up early. And, and then we had a couple different kinds of clover, and we did have a little bit of alfalfa. you got to be very careful with alfalfa and clover when we're talking about ruminants because too much, too rich of a legume diet equals bloat. And too much bloat that doesn't get treated immediately equals dead ruminants. Okay, so you got to be careful. But it was kind of a mix of those different things, and we went through and we we planted all that with that drill. I, I would tell you that um, I, I don't know, you know, if there's a drill out there that you could do this on a small scale with in your little suburban lot. Uh, probably what you would you would want to do is is actually just go through and do a hand seeder and then kind of rake that in lightly into the soil and then and maybe cover it with like uh, you know a, a light straw or something like that. Obviously you want to water it in well. Um, that's probably what I would suggest on a on a small scale like that. Uh, if you're talking about improving existing pasture, which was kind of the second half of your question, uh, what you do is you go out and you look at your pasture and you see what's there. Uh, you kind of see what's missing. You figure out what you want to add uh, based on what animals are going to be there. And for my my 50 horse uh, Kubota tractor, I've got what you would call a, a seed spreader on steroids. It's actually a three point attachment piece of equipment, and it would hold hundreds of pounds of seed. Okay, and uh, I just drive the tractor around. I kick this dude on, and it just starts slinging seed about 20 feet in every direction off the back of the tractor. And uh, you can go out and broadcast it, and, and and then what you do is is one of two things. Uh, you can then let your cattle or other ruminants that you're you're grazing, your mob grazing, uh, go through uh, when the ground is is nice and soft, and let them kind of trample that in lightly so that it gets good soil contact and let it germinate that way. Um, if it's just a legume, if it's like a clover or an alfalfa, uh, you can do uh, what we call here is frost seeding. So in February. You go out and you broadcast that, and the freezing and thawing action of the ground uh, will actually kind of pull seed into the soil, and then it will germinate once it gets warm enough a little bit later in the spring, like in March and April. Uh, or the third way to do this, and, and this is kind of what you have to do if it's a little bit later in the summer, if the ground isn't super soft or if you're not going to have animals going through anytime soon, is you use a device that's called a cold packer, and that's basically just a, a pull-behind uh, implement that that goes in onto the back of a tractor. They actually make small ones uh, for 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 lawn tractors like you might have available to you. Uh, and and you just pull that behind and it just it just hits those seeds and it just gently tamps them down into the ground for you. So you just kind of run over them and it just pushes them into the ground and helps them get good soil contact. So those are a couple of different ways that you can go about. Uh, you know, Im improving existing pasture or starting pasture from scratch. Um, you know, you, you with your chickens and rabbits there in your, in your backyard, you, you probably want to look at some different broadleaf plants that I wouldn't necessarily plant 
uh, specifically because I'm more concerned about cattle. Just do some research, talk with some people, get into some forums and, and ask people, you know, who, who have rabbits, you know, exactly what it is they like to eat. I mean, I, I know they like a, a few things. I, I'm not sure, uh, about some other things, but for me, that'd be very much a sidebar. Uh, enterprise, you know, and, and again, I'm really focused on the cows because long term, like that's all I want to do is cattle. And in the long term, that's really all I care about. Obviously, we're, we're interested in doing sheep and things like that, uh, long term as well. But the, you know, the main thing is, has got to remain the main thing. So it really boils down to your personal context and what it is you're wanting to raise on your land. So anyway, Kenneth, I hope that helps you out, man. Um, good luck with your uh, your little project there, and I, I hope that you're able to, to get a bigger piece of property one of these days and, and uh, really get into farming on a broader scale. Uh, but hey, listen, you, you learn small, you fail small, so starting on 0.4 acres is a great way to get started. Uh, you guys, if you want to learn more about me, head out to my website at DarbySimpson.com. There's a lot of free articles you can read out there. Uh, also, if you're interested in doing a one-on-one -on -one consult, I do offer those. And if you're an MSB member through Jack's program, you get a discount on those consults. So please use that discount code if you're interested in consulting with me one-on-one. -on -one. Um, I haven't been writing a whole lot of articles uh, the past few months because I've been doing this Grass-Fed Life podcast with Diego Footer, which you can check out at uh, permaculturevoices.com or you can find it in iTunes. And if you're really interested in going deeper, if you're serious about farming and farming for profit, I would encourage you to check out the second running of the Farm Business Essentials Workshop that's going to be held in my hometown of Martinsville, Indiana, March 2nd to the 4th. I'll actually be putting that on with my good friend, Diego Footer of Permaculture Voices. Uh, it's a three-day intense, and I do mean intense, workshop that uh, covers anything you could possibly imagine and more. Uh, if you're thinking about starting a farming business, if you're ready to transition into a full-time farming business from a part-time business, or if you're looking to change up how you're operating your farm, I would encourage you to check that out. You can learn more at the Permaculture Voices website, or you can email me directly, and I'll get the information to you. Um, as of right now, all of our VIP slots are sold out. The class is about halfway full, but we do still have some seats remaining, so head on out and, and check that out. As always, everyone, have a great weekend. Take care and keep those questions coming. See ya. Okay, given this is only uh, four-tenths of an acre that we're talking about here, I have a low-tech solution that might be beneficial. When I lived in Arkansas, we had uh, private roads that were also, in some method of madness, somewhat county-maintained. And that, mean that, that meant that because we paid taxes, the county paid a guy with a bulldozer about once a year to grade the roads, and it would get pretty bad in between those gradings. One of the ways that we would kind of self-maintain the road is we just got a big old um, chain-link fence gate, and we would just drag it up and down certain areas of the road. It did a pretty good job of knocking the dirt in the holes and all. If you have, if it's not compacted really hard, if you have relatively loose dirt, uh, using a lawn tractor or a four-wheeler will do a pretty decent job of disturbing the soil before you seed it. And you got to time this right. Um, with moisture. You don't want it bone dry, and you don't want it really wet. If it was lightly moist when you did it, and you planted it like a day before it rained, that would be great. If the weather guesser can help you out, and you can time that, I think that would be great. Now, my other thought with this is, 
I would come up with a good mix of, you know, Darby is saying he's not sure what rabbits like. Rabbits like most stuff that's green. But rabbits definitely like plantain. And if you go to uh, Hearn, H-E-A-R-N-E, Hearn Seeds, you can get a, a product called Tonic Plantain, which is a narrow-leaf plantain by the pound. Okay, You don't need much when you're planting a fourth of an acre, a four-tenths of an acre. Um, different clover mixes, but definitely Dutch and New Zealand white would be things that I would add to that mix. And various perennial grasses and some annual grasses, too. Because what you want, you got a bare slate, so you got to get something up. And I don't give a shit what grows. If you get something to grow and start running animals on it, you can improve it to whatever you want it to be. So then my other thing is I would come up with a seed mix of the things you primarily want a success to, that you want to have. And low-growing, sprawling clovers are a great thing for chickens and rabbits and things like that. And you could use some annual oats and stuff in there like he was mentioning, but those are the things I would have as my perennial seed mix. And I would throw a few things that are just soil improvers, like some daikon radish and stuff like that, a small percentage of the mix. And I would have this mix. And if you're going to be running chickens and rabbits on that small of a property, I assume that you're going to be doing this with some sort of a tractor mechanism. And when you move that tractor, I don't care what time of year it is, I don't care how good or how bad it seems, you take a very small amount of that seed mix and you put it right where those, those animals were. Some of those seeds may not germinate till next year. You'd be surprised how long seed can lay on the ground waiting for the right conditions to germinate. If you pulse your animals through that, If you get anything started and you pulse your animals through that and you follow that course, you'll have a salad bar on that four-tenths of an acre for those for those animals. Okay, That's just my little addition there. Uh, next up, I have a question for Gary Collins on Crohn's disease. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins of PrimalPowerMethod.com, answering all your questions, primal, paleo, health and wellness, exercise, off the grid, and just basic life simplification. Now today, I like uh, the question a lot that I'm going to answer here because it will actually kind of dovetail into another uh, malady that a lot of people suffer from as far as foods to avoid. Now, in this one, he's, he's ba basically asking what, what foods should he avoid? And anyone who has Crohn's um, ulcer, ulcerative colitis, God, hope I could say <laughs> tough word there, and also irritable bowel. Those kind of all dovetail into each other. And also the one I was talking about that will, will kind of blend into this is actually GERD or gastric reflux, um, heartburn. So the, the diet for all those is very, very similar in foods to avoid. Now, what I would recommend He has done paleo kind of. He said not fully. And what I tell people when I hear paleo sort of, they're usually not doing it very well at all because with paleo, it's an elimination diet and an anti-inflammatory diet. So if you're going to do it for the first 30 days, you got you got to be strict. I mean, you've got to really do it if you're doing it for health conditions. Now, if you're healthy and you're going to do it, I would recommend doing it very strict for 30 days. But you got more leeway. If you're suffering from, you know, something like Crohn's, I mean, you can't dilly-dally with this stuff. You have to follow it strict, keep a journal, watch everything you're eating, so that way you can you can narrow down what's giving you these flare-ups and causing a lot of problems. So that would be my first recommendation. Strict paleo, 30 days, no dairy, no grains, no beans, none, zero, and then 
after the 30 days. If you want to try and implement foods, then you can because then that gives you a gauge of what's going to mess with you. Now, on the paleo side, though, I would eliminate nuts, seeds, and corn. Yes, corn is not paleo, but for some reason, a lot of people who say they're paleo experts keep saying that corn can be paleo or it's in that gray zone. Corn is not paleo. And especially for someone suffering from, from his conditions, corn just, I, I don't know what it is, but it really inflames the lower GI tract of people suffering from colitis, Crohn's, and irritable bowel. I just have noticed that over the years in nuts and seeds because nuts and seeds do not, you, you do not digest them and break them down similarly. They, they pass in the chunks that you do not break down whole. So what that does is it irritates your, your lower GI as, as they kind of move through. It can do some scraping, scratching. So I would stay away from nuts and seeds for those 30 days as well within the strict paleo. Uh, do not eat overly fatty foods. Far as in, in, in paleo, what happens? People will go, well, you know, I'm going to grill my steak in coconut oil, or you know, I'm going to uh, fry my chicken in coconut oil. Don't do that. Just use the natural fats that are contained within your foods. Don't add any extra fat to anything that you're going to consume, because that will slow down your digestion and it does cause irritation. I've seen it. You're going to have to play with that one. The next is tomatoes. That's an obvious one. And actually, that's a big one if you have GERD or gastric reflux. Tomatoes cause all kinds of havoc because um, of the acid. And also, if you eat a whole tomato, the peels tend to be a little difficult to digest. Alcohol is out, causes all kinds of digestive issues in the lower di digestive tract for people with his condition. Coffee, tea, any caffeine-containing um, liquid, stay away from that. And here's one that a lot of people don't talk about, and that is citrus. Uh, on some, in, in, gosh, I can't remember where I wrote this. I wrote an article a long time ago about uh, common food allergies. Citrus is a big one. And I didn't know that until I was doing this research several years ago. And I went, citrus? Huh. Don't understand that one. Never heard of that. And guess what? <laughs> I have an allergy to citrus. Didn't even know it. If I wouldn't have done that research, I wouldn't have had a clue. Because citrus messes me up, but I'd never, I, I'm just not a big uh, citrus fruit eater, or, and I just never really noticed. But it does; it gets me pretty good. So I would uh, eliminate that, and also with the active lifestyle, he's got to stay. It's all got to be put together. He got to be doing it all. You know, it hasn't worked. It does it consistent at working out. You're gonna have to figure it out some way. You got to keep moving, keep active. It's important. You know, the work. You know. Diet's 80% of it, but that other 20% is your exercise and movement. I would supplement with a multivitamin as people with uh, colitis and Crohn's tend to have difficulty absorbing nutrients. And turmeric, I think if he's not taking turmeric, he this might really help him with his, with his bouts because uh, turmeric is a very powerful antioxidant and anti-inflammatory. And everyone's heard me and Jack rave about turmeric. Of all the supplements I've ever taken in my life, turmeric is the one that I find to be just the most amazing. It is an amazing supplement. Now, will it cure all and make you taller and have more sex? No, it's not that. But it really helps with people who have chronic inflammation. Also, fish oil. So you get those, those three together to get your nutrients and your anti-inflammatory effects. 
I think that should cover it on that. That's where I would start and go from there and just gauge. Remember to journal um, people with colitis and, and, uh, and digestive issues. Journaling is your best friend. Otherwise, you forget what you eat when you ate it. Um, you know, maybe something had a different ingredient in it. You, you read all your labels. Uh, if you're buying anything packaged, which I highly recommend you don't. But uh, I think that should give you a good basis from there to start with. And then you can fine tune as you go along. And I, I hope you will. I have a friend who had a lot of his uh, lower GI removed, uh, sufferer of Crohn's disease and uh, almost died. So be really, really careful. And you just got to watch your diet all the time. Thanks again. And I am an MSB vendor. I give a discount in there. So all you members go in there. Use the coupon code on my website, primalpowermethod.com, to get 10% off. And I always offer free shipping. Thanks again. You know, I completely agree with Gary that when you're dealing with any sort of inflammatory disorder and you want to try diet as a solution, you have to be like friggin' Nazi level with anything and everything that could cause, not does cause you inflammation, could cause you inflammation. You have to completely eliminate it for at least 30 days, and I think 60 is better. And then you slowly add things back in, and if you have any kind of trigger, then you know, well, this did it. And you start making that journal that Gary was talking about. I think that's that's the only way that you're going to be successful with diet is <clears throat> to go cold turkey. And it can be really difficult to go that, that strictly paleo. It really can, but it's only 30 to 60 days. And I would just kind of frame it this way. If I walked up to you and I said, I will give you a million dollars to go to jail for 60 days. You'll have no criminal record, but you'll have to be in jail for 60 days. You won't be with hardcore criminals. Uh, you'll be in your own little cell, and you'll be fed three squares a day. The food will suck, but it'll be edible. And uh, you just sit there for your 60 days, and when you get out of jail, you know, you can have your million dollars. Okay, so you're going to go extreme with your diet for 60 days and claim your health. Totally freaking worth it. Just a way to put it in perspective. Next up, I have a question for John Pugliano on rate swaps and how they affect holders of mortgages. John, take it away. Hello, TSP listeners. Today, our financial question comes from Aaron, and Aaron has a complicated business question. Aaron's question was very timely, involved a significant amount of money, and so I contacted him earlier this month through email, uh, and we've already resolved these issues. So he didn't have to wait around to get an answer today. The second item is that Aaron's question is of a very specific business nature, which doesn't necessarily apply to most TSP listeners. So I want to take Aaron's question as an opportunity to make some distinctions between what happens in personal finance versus business finance, and also to introduce a couple financial terms to you that you may not be familiar with. Okay, so here's Aaron's situation. Aaron currently has $4 million in commercial mortgage loans for his business. Now, that $4 million is split up across as many as five different lenders, and there's a number of different types of mortgages that he's taken on. But the bulk of this money is in the form of balloon payments. We'll get to that term in a minute. And Aaron's goal, because he's worried about interest rates increasing in the future, which is probably a very likely scenario, He wants to be able to lock in this $4 million loan at a fixed rate over a 10-year period. 
Now, there's a lot involved with that. He's talking about refinancing a great deal of money. Aaron could face a $288,000 prepayment penalty for refinancing this loan early. I wanted to point that out because that's generally a big difference from what you encounter as a business owner when you take on business financing versus most consumer loans. Most consumer loans, for example, a traditional mortgage on a house, does not have prepayment penalties. So if you have a floating variable interest rate or if you have what you feel is a high interest rate and interest rates have come down, you can refinance to lock in a lower rate generally without having to pay a prepayment penalty other than just having to pay the normal loan processing fees. There are not necessarily similar consumer protections in place for business loans. Now, not all business loans, but many business loans do have prepayment penalties in them because the lenders want to make sure that they get that guaranteed income stream. And so to minimize their risk, if you pay off the loan early and they're losing profits from the interest payments, they're going to make that business owner pay a penalty for it. Now, along those same lines, this is not in Aaron's question, but something similar that's different with most business real estate transactions that doesn't occur with regular consumers has to do with breaking a lease. As a regular consumer, if you go out and rent an apartment and you rent it for a year, and after you've been there a couple months, for whatever reason, you decide to move, in most cases, in most states that I'm aware of, all you're penalized for would be the one-month security deposit that you put down for your rent. You're able to break the lease and move on. That's generally not the case with real estate business leases. If you go out and rent some type of property, you know, office space or a warehouse or some type of a garage to, to operate your business out of, in most cases, certainly the ones that I'm aware of, you're going to sign a long-term lease, particularly if it's some type of office or retail space that requires improvements, and you're going to be on the hook for the length of that lease. So if you've been in business for six months and you decide you can no longer afford that property or maybe you've outgrown it and need to move to something larger, well, when you try and break that lease, the landlord is going to come back to your business and try and recover the remaining rent on that lease over, you know, could be over a five-year period. So it's very important for you to know that when you take on a business mortgage or some type of a business lease on a property, you do not have the same consumer policies and protections that you're accustomed to in personal financial loans like renting an apartment or getting a mortgage on your home. Like you've heard Jack and I say many times, it's a very wise practice to get yourself a good CPA and a good attorney. Now, as far as a couple of financial terms that came up in Aaron's question, first off, he mentions having a balloon mortgage. Well, what the heck is that? A balloon mortgage or a balloon loan is not like your standard traditional loan where you have an equal payment schedule that takes place over time. With a balloon payment, generally what happens, let's say you have a five-year loan like Aaron does, for the first five years of that loan, he's paying back principal and interest based on a 25-year amortization schedule. So that would be you know, similar to what you would do with a 30-year home mortgage. For those first five years, that's the way his payments are. He'd pay a set amount each month. So much of it would go to pay back principal. So much of it would go back to pay back interest. Most of it's going back to pay interest like any loan does in the early stages. But what's different about a balloon payment is that at the end of that term, in Aaron's case, at the end of five years, that payment in full becomes due. So even though initially his payment schedule was based on 25-year payments, it'd be very affordable, at the end of that fifth year, he has to come up with the full amount. 
Now, in Aaron's case, you know, that's close to $4 million. That's a lot of money. Why would someone want to do that? Well, you do it for a number of reasons. It may be the only loan you qualify for. You may be able to get it at a lower interest rate. It may be an opportunity for you to have much lower payments on the front end. And if you're starting up a new business and you have limited cash flow, you want to put more of that money into building your business and less of it into paying off the loan. You may also take on a loan like this if you're buying commercial real estate and you intend to flip it. For example, if you're buying some property, you plan to improve it, build the value up, and flip it in, say, 18 months. Well, you're not interested in a 25-year mortgage because you're not going to own the property for longer than two years. And so in that case, you would maybe want to take on a balloon payment. So there could be a number of reasons why you might want to do this. I just want to introduce the term to you and let you know what it is and let you become aware of it. And most of you can already see that there's nothing inherently wrong with a balloon mortgage. But as most of you have probably already figured out by now, the one downfall is is that you're on the hook for the full amount at the end of the term of that loan. So if at the end of five years you don't have that full money to pay off the loan, you have to go out and get another loan to refinance it if for whatever reason you don't qualify for refinancing. Perhaps your credit worthiness has changed or perhaps mortgage rates have increased and you can no longer finance the debt, or perhaps you just don't have the cash flow in general because of the property loss value or your business isn't doing well. Whatever the reason, if you're unable to make that loan good at the end of the term, the lender is going to repossess the property. So that's the one big downfall of a balloon mortgage. Now, the other term that I want to introduce to you is Aaron's question about the rate swap. What is a rate swap? A rate swap is something that's not very common in personal loans because, as we already discussed, in most cases, there aren't prepayment penalties and it's easy for people to refinance their home loans. Since that's not the case with business loans, and there could be things like prepayment penalties or the overall inability of finding a lender that even wants to loan to a small business, most business loans that are made are not incentivized with government programs like FHA or VA mortgages would be on a home. And so the full burden for the repayment of that loan falls on the business and the business owner. And because of that higher level of risk without the government stepping in and backing up the loan, the banks that make these loans are going to charge higher fees and be more cautious with who they lend money to. So there's less liquidity in that market. There's less small business loans available compared to the availability and ease that you would have getting a regular mortgage for your home. And that's where the rate swap comes in. You see, because it's hard for businesses to get loans and then even harder to refinance them, once they receive a loan, they're generally stuck with it. And so, for example, let's say that you have a 10-year variable rate loan and you're worried about interest rates moving higher. Well, in many cases, as a business owner, you may be stuck with that loan. And so since you can't refinance it, your next best option is to do a rate swap. And that's where you find a counterparty, perhaps another small business, or some type of institutional investor that has a fixed rate loan, and then between the two of you, you can swap rates. A simplistic way to understand how these rate swaps work is to imagine that there's a total sum of money, let's call it a million dollars, that's owned by each party. One party's borrowing that at a variable 3% rate, the other party's borrowing that at a fixed 6% rate. Overall, you're talking about 9 percentage points paid on a million dollars. And so the way this is constructed, again, this is a very simplistic model, but the way it's constructed is that the person paying the variable rate of 3% agrees to, for example, pay fixed 4.5% loan. They're paying an additional percent and a half, but it is guaranteed, and they don't have to worry about the rates going up in the future. 
So they're happy. They're paying a little more, but it's a fixed rate. That extra one and a half percent rate can then be applied to the other business owner that was paying six percent, thus making their new rate four and a half as well. So you have two counterparties each agreeing to pay four and a half percent. That adds up to the total nine percent that was the overall aggregate rate on the loan to begin with. And so the business owner with the variable rate gets to pay a little more and the benefit of that is they get a guaranteed locked in rate. And then the other business owner with the fixed rate gets some of their costs deferred by taking on the risk of sharing their fixed rate loan with another company. That's what we call counterparty risk. So both parties feel they've benefited by taking on the counterparty risk of the other company. Aaron, thanks for your question. Thanks for giving us the opportunity to introduce some new financial terms to the TSP audience. If you'd like to hear more about my stock market commentary or my general principles on wealth building, then please check out the Wealth Studying Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. That, my friends, was a very high lesson in economics and debt leverage in the entrepreneurial space. And uh, we are very fortunate to have a guy like John on our expert counsel to be able to break that down for us that way. Next question I have, it's time for something totally different. We're going to hear from Mr. Stephen Harris on tri-fuel adapters for generators. And I have a few thoughts after he's done to add to what he has to say. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in to answer your question. This one is from Chris. I was wondering on Stephen Harris's thoughts on tri-fuel adapters for generators, specifically the Yamaha 2-kilowatt inverter generator, and, and thought since I have a natural gas supply in my house, well, this would be a great option. Are there any specific types of adapters or brands that I should stay away from or you would prefer? Thank you, Chris. For all those of you listening, a tri-fuel adapter means your generator will run off of gasoline, natural gas, or or propane. So either one of the fuels. And actually, it'll run off any one of the three fuels. If you put a natural gas or a propane adapter onto your generator, it does not interrupt the gasoline supply. You can still fill it up with gasoline and run it off gasoline. In fact, there's a little valve they give you to go in there to turn off the gasoline so it does not flow while the natural gas or propane is going. Look, here's the deal. The natural gas system in the United States and Canada and in the rest of the world is not fragile. It is reliable. It stays up and running in a blackout. The power is gone, the electricity is out, but the natural gas is still running. It was when I went through the blackout of 2003 in Michigan for three days. It was still up and running. And as you can see by the fires from houses after Hurricane Sandy and after earthquakes in California, it's still up and running. The natural gas system is powered by Natural gas, so it stays operational even during a blackout. During Hurricane Sandy, when it stri- as I said, when it stripped homes off their foundation, there were natural gas fires, small ones, that burned for days. It took them days to turn off the natural gas. In California, where there are earthquakes, they will turn off the natural gas system after a quake. But for the rest of the USA and Canada, natural gas will stay on and be there for you in a disaster. It's like having an unlimited supply of gasoline available that you don't have to store. You would be a bloody fool 
to not run a generator off of propane or natural gas for as long as you can before you had to switch to gasoline. The same goes for your propane pig that fuels your natural gas furnace or your stove. If you have a 500-gallon pig, call the other propane company and tell them you want a 1,000-gallon pig that you put in the Tell them you put in a new heater for your garage, and they'll upgrade your pig for you. So if you have a 1,000-gallon pig, uh, and again, for you who don't know, a pig is a propane tank that sits in your backyard. It's the big white thing. It's called a pig. Don't take any offense by it. It's I don't think the propane's offended if I called it a pig. So the thing is, propane, like natural gas, it never spoils. Ever. Ever. It's a great fuel to run your generator. It will never spoil. It will never change. It will never degrade. It's all the ultimate fuel for your generator. And your generator runs really clean on propane and natural gas. I mean, like very little oil contamination. Um, you still have to change your oil about every 100 hours. Don't forget that, okay? If you're running a generator or a, a, a whole house generator, and it's running for four days, 24 hours a day, you got to turn it off and change oil about every 100 hours. Consult with your manual and your supplier. Now, I still advocate the storing of gasoline, like I do in the fuel and fuel storage class at stephen1234.com, or in the one five-gallon-a-can-month rotation method by our wonderful host, Jack Spirko. Highly recommend you store gasoline, and I think a gallon a month, not sorry, a gallon, a five-gallon can a month is a great place to start. Now, if you have a generator and you want it to run off of propane or natural gas, the number one place to go to is propanecarbs.com. P-R-O-P-A-N-E-C-A-R-B-S.com. They have a no-drill carb that will bolt on right in front of your throttle body before the air cleaner. It'll bolt on, and the propane gets intermixed in there and goes into the carburetor, and it runs perfectly. You can depend upon it. Now, also, another place is Central Main Diesel, C-E-N-T-R-A-L-M-A-I-N-E. Diesel, D-I-E-S-E-L, Central Maine Diesel, as in the state of Maine.com. They have uh, drilled carburetors, which is what I have because the no drills weren't available when I did it. I have a Honda EU2000i with a tri-fuel kit on it with a drilled carburetor, and it does run off of gasoline, propane, and natural gas, and I have done this for hundreds of hours. I even run it off of wood gas from a gasifier, and it ran fine, except my wood gas was dirty, and I clogged up the carburetor and that cost me $500 to have that fixed and replaced but that's a whole nother story now there are propane conversion kits on Amazon you want to go search for Honda propane conversion kit on Amazon or Yamaha propane conversion kit and you will find some no drill propane propane kits on Amazon so like I said, you want the no-drill version. This means it bolts onto the air intake. 
Drilled means you replace the carb with one that's drilled, and it has a hole in it for the natural gas or propane to go into the carburetor. I got the drilled ones. Like I said, the non-drilled ones were not available when I got mine. So I want to emphasize, when you put the conversion kit on, it will still run off of gasoline. Now, the difference between running off of propane and natural gas is there is a screw adapter on the top of the diaphragm gas regulator. And you will have to open up the screw to allow more natural gas in than propane for it to run at the same speed and load because natural gas is less dense than propane. Uh, natural gas is more fluffy than propane. Propane is a more dense, fuel-dense gas. So you screw it down, and you let less propane in, and it works. It is that simple. It's not hard. Trust me, a little fooling around with it with a screwdriver, and your generator will be working just fine. If you are, If it's running in your house, and all of a sudden your refrigerator comes on and it conks out the generator, you go out and you open up the screw a little bit more, restart the generator, and it will power your refrigerator and stuff just fine. So it takes a little bit of adjustment. All the details will be in the manual. It's not very hard. Do not be intimidated by it. Do not be scared by it. But by all means, definitely get a conversion kit. And uh, on uh, solar1234.com, I have a thing I show you of how to get I, – I have the complete receipt from Home Depot, and I show you how to uh, tap into the natural gas line or the propane line going to your water heater. You know, there's a little tail off the bottom of the line going to the water heater. I show you how to tap into that and how to use an airline. An airline will hold propane and natural gas just fine. No, it won't leak through the damn line, okay? If it holds air, it'll hold propane and natural gas. Propane and natural gas molecule is much bigger than nitrogen and oxygen. It's not going to get through the airline. But I show you how to use a flexible airline to run it to your generator outside of the house. Your propane and natural gas generator still needs to be outside of the house, outside of the garage when you're running it to run it safely because of potential exhaust emissions from the generator getting back into the house. This is not something you would want to do the way I show you if you have kids around the house. You do not want to do this before a disaster. You would want to do it after a disaster, and then you want want to keep the kids away from it because it is propane or natural gas running through a line that you can turn on and off with a valve through a hose that is on with hose barbs and a hose clamp onto an adapter. So. Those are some cautions. If you want it done professionally, uh, go to a plumber and tell them you need a natural gas line there outside your house. In fact, you might as well install a propane or a natural gas barbecue at the same time and say you need a natural gas line outside your house. He will run for you natural gas or propane through a black iron pipe within code, within safety regulations, and then he'll give you like a three-foot piece of flexible <coughs> uh, pipe that uh, you can actually buy it at Home Depot. It's what 
connects up to your natural gas dryer from the natural gas line uh, or propane line. It's a flexible piece of of uh, metal piping, and he'll give you a flexible piece, and you can then take this flexible piece and you can screw it on to the natural gas or propane adapter on the generator, and it will work safely within code outside of the house. So those are the details. For more on this, go to Stephen1234.com. And again, what I show you on how to hook up with a flex line, with the, the airline, is an emergency way of doing it, only not recommended for places with children or people who want to stay within code. Thank you. So the only additional thing that I want to say, because Steve always says, you know, get a get a thousand gallon pig or a five hundred uh, gallon pig. Uh, I, I have uh, propane here at the house, and the only thing in our house that we run on propane is the stove. So this isn't really a big deal for me because you don't. You'd be surprised how far uh, you know a hundred twenty gallons of uh, propane will go. It's uh, it really holds a hundred gallons is what a hundred and twenty gallon tank holds, um, but that's four hundred and twenty pounds of propane, and we have that size tank because it's difficult to run lines here, and due to distance restrictions, we're able to put that up near right up near the house, and that's all good and well. We can't put a five hundred pa- uh, gallon or thousand gallon tank that close to the house. We'd have to put it at least 10 feet away from the house, and anyway, it would be 10 feet away from the house would be really obnoxious. Um, and then, of course, when we, we bury line for a propane tank, we're, we're burying you know, a fairly expensive line, and it can't be a couple inches deep. It needs to be down underground just for safety purposes, which here would entail a jackhammer. So the only thing I'm saying is when you think, well, I'll just get a 1,000-gallon know, propane tank, one, you usually can get the tank at no cost. The tank itself, they'll bring it out and set up, but they're going to want you to fill it to to do so. It's a lot of money. So in, in propane, it's well spent, but it is a lot of money. And two, you need to think about where that tank will be placed and what are any restrictions regarding the size and weight of that tank. Because my thought was, we'll just throw a big ass pig right there and we'll run a line over to uh, where I was set my generator with my bypass switch up. And then I can run my, you know, my gen, I can get a standby generator. So I was going to do. And, uh, the cost was just cost prohibitive in my situation. So I just would say anytime you're planning on propane and tanks, you got to think about distances and requirements. And even in the sticks, like that's one of the things that, like you don't just follow the code because you have to with propane. You follow the code because you're stupid if you don't. Okay. Just want to throw that in now. If you have natural gas to the house, and you have a generator, and you don't set it up to run on natural gas, I think you've made a huge mistake. Because whatever you have to pay a plumber to plumb in some good lines of stuff for you, whatever, it's it's like a never-ending battery. Because Steve's right, the uh, the reliability of gas is immense. When I used to do underground construction, directional boring, kind of referenced that earlier about, you know, this is what happens when you drill. We had a couple times we hit gas lines. Um now, I want to say that we never hit a gas line that was properly marked. We always hit one that the idiot that was supposed to mark it didn't mark. And I call them idiots because there's always a concern of getting blown up and having your guys get killed and things like that when you do that kind of work. And some idiot is responsible to put that yellow paint on the ground and doesn't do it. But I have to say, um, <clears throat> in every instance, you know, like for one, we hit a six-inch poly main, gas main. 
and we record a four-inch hole. We'll be hit it. I mean, you couldn't hit it more perfectly centered if if you tried uh, with a, what they call a railhead bit on a directional bore machine that cut a four-inch hole straight into it. And it was blowing gas out of the ground. I yelled for the guy to shut the machine down. We called the gas company. Gas service actually was not interrupted by a hole in the the line. There was plenty of it venting out, but plenty of it still going where it was supposed to be. And the gas company came out, and they ran a bypass line. They actually cut into an actively blowing line, and they ran a, basically a, a piece of, of two-inch poly, like a big rainbow around it, okay? And once they did that, then they pinched it off. Then they spliced in a replacement. Then they removed and, and polyed over the two holes, that they, and they never let the pressure off. True story. Um, I could go into more, but that's enough. Uh, but my point is, with a hole in the frickin' line, the people at the other end of the line still a gas. It is the most rock-solid part of our grid that we have. Use it if you have access to it. Unfortunately, I do not. Next question is for Tim Glantz on military surplus M101 trailers. Hey, Jack, and everybody out there listening to TSP Land, Tim Glantz here from Old Grouch's Military Surplus with a question from Jesse about M101 trailers. Uh, and Jesse's wondering if you use one as an off-road trailer behind a Jeep, wanted to know what they weigh and how easy they can be converted to tow behind a civilian vehicle. Um, well, I'm assuming, now let me clarify two things. First, there, there's the US M101 and there's the Canadian M101, and they're totally different trailers. The US M101 is a uh, cargo trailer. It's rated the three-quarter ton trailer by the military. And when they say that, that means off-road, it's rated to carry three-quarters of a ton. On-road, more than that. Um, it is really designed for towing behind a full-size pickup and not behind something like a Jeep. Uh, your, your empty weight on that trailer is uh, almost 1,400 pounds. And uh, that is a lot of weight on a trailer. Behind Jeeps, the military used uh, the smaller quarter-ton trailers. The uh, World War II was the MBT trailer. Then there was the M100 trailer that came out in the 50s. And then in the 60s, the M416. And in all reality, those are much better choices for behind a Jeep. Uh, unless, Assuming you mean a traditional Jeep and not a Cherokee or something bigger. But even then, the 101 is pushing it. Uh, now, there's the 101. Uh, and 101A1, you really don't find straight 101s, you find 101A1s, and then there's 101A2 are the two major variants you find. The 101A1 originally was pulled behind the old M37 Dodge Power Wagon, and as a result, it has 916 tires on lock ring wheels. And if any of you have never changed a tire on a lock ring wheel, what a joy. You need a duckbill sledgehammer and tire irons and a, a lot of sweat. They're also fairly dangerous because if something's damaged, when you go to air that tire up, it will explode and it can take your head off. You need a tire cage to safely inflate it. Uh, in fact, they're so risky that now if you were to take that uh, one of those tires to 100 tire shops around your place, unless you're out in a major agricultural community where they're still used to seeing them on ag stuff, you're probably only going to find two or three stations at the most even willing to do the job. Most won't take on changing that tire. Uh The A2 series was designed for pull behind the uh, 
Dodge M880 series and later the Cuck V pickups, and then later it was pulled behind the Humvee until it was replaced. They have uh, a much better system. They have eight lug, one ton GM wheels and 235-85-16 tires, exact same ones that are on a Cuck V pickup. In addition, uh, your straight 101A1s did not have brakes aside from parking brakes. Uh, when you parked it, you could set the parking brake and leave it. The 101A2s actually have surge brakes where there's a hydraulic master cylinder in the pinnel. And you, uh, when you hit the brakes, it pushes in on the, the vehicle and that activates the brakes. And when it's in good shape, that system works pretty well. But even then, uh, it's probably too much for a Jeep. I'm a Jeep guy myself and I know they're sensitive to trailer weight and also trailer width. When you're pulling a trailer wider than that Jeep, it can get kind of squirrely. Uh, so for that standpoint, I would suggest either looking for one of the M416 Jeep trailers, or if you search on the internet, a lot of guys are buying those cheap little Harbor Freight or Tractor Supply or Rural King, uh, trailer kits where you bolt one together and modify them to make off-road trailers. And both of those are better options in my mind than a 101 for a Jeep. Uh, as far as what you would need to do to tow it behind a civilian vehicle, um, get a pinnel hook adapter for your uh, your hitch on your vehicle, and then uh, adapt your wiring. You can either buy an adapter for the military uh, connector, or a better bet is just take that military connector off and splice in whatever connector matches your vehicle and change the 24-volt bulbs in it for 12-volt bulbs. That's all you need to do to convert it to tow behind a civilian vehicle. Um but another drawback for military trailers, if you don't have to have that off-road capacity, uh, the deck is high. You, you mean your deck height, your cargo bed height is the same as a full-size pickup. And one of the reasons I like using trailers a lot of time is that I've got a cargo bed that's a lot lower that makes it a lot easier to load. Uh, so that's another disadvantage. Now, if you've got a uh, full-size pickup, I would say go with a 101. Uh, I've got a 101 that even with that high deck, I use it for pulling firewood out of the woods in places where the uh, lower clearance civilian trailers I've got just wouldn't be practical to take it back here in the mountains. We've got a lot of hills and a lot of places where I need that better approach and departure angle on that trailer. And in that case, it's great, although, once again, it's a pain loading wood into that higher deck. I uh, hope that helps and gives you a little perspective there. But... uh yeah, for a Jeep, uh, a 101 is really too wide and too heavy to be practical because, you know, if you get a civilian trailer, you can build it out at four or 500 pounds versus a 1,400-pound trailer. You're already saving a 1,000 pounds in weight. Uh, so it would be a, a much better choice to either get a, a military quarter-ton trailer or a, a, a civilian trailer and modify it for off-road use. If you have any more questions, feel free to hit me up. Uh, you can find my email on my website at oldgrouch.com. And as always, thanks for listening. And, Jack, thanks for the great show. Let me tell you something. The tires he's talking about, you don't want to mess with it. Pulling that ring off, um, I did a lot of that in the Army. I was a mechanic, but a mechanic in the Army spends a lot of time being a glorified Jiffy Lube at times. You do a lot of tire changes. And uh, I more than once had one of those tires inside one of those cages, and you hook the air hose up to it, and you're inflating it, and boom, and that ring got blown off. It happened twice, and 
is scary as freaking shit. Nothing happened because you had a cage. But you see right there why you have to have a cage. And there's even a procedure for doing it in an emergency situation in the field that involves turning the tire upside down and pointing it at the ground. And I have to say, after seeing one go off in a cage, I don't know how effective that would be. I really don't. Um, my my take on this is, and I think this is what Tim's basically saying, don't do it. I think you'd be better off going down if you wanted a, a heavy-duty, high-sitting uh, trailer to go down in the freaking junkyard with a acetylene torch and cut the back off a three-quarter ton busted-ass truck um, before you tried to use one of these military trailers for civilian purposes, especially pulling with something like a standard Jeep. Uh, they're heavy. They're, 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 they're designed very well for their intended purpose, and that's to like be drug around by like a military deuce-and-a-half or five-ton. They're great for that. They do a great job. Even Humvees do okay with them, but no. No, I, I just... I also, I wanted to throw a little bit in here about trailers and towing relative to the vehicle you're towing it with and the setup. It is very easy to hook up a trailer to any vehicle and in general be able to pull it down the road. Stopping, steering, and controlling are different and having something to set up with proper trailer brakes and things like that is is huge. And some vehicles just aren't made to tow. And some vehicles are okay to tow, but you better be careful about what you're towing. I would want to go light and strong with a trailer for a Jeep. I would want to see it as you know something you can put in four times the capacity of an average trunk. Because you don't have a trunk on your Jeep. And, and work off that type of a model, I would actually be, if I wanted a, a, a trailer with as much clearance as my Jeep, I'd be very tempted to talk somebody at a local metal shop about custom building it, and in the end, it probably won't cost you much more, and in the long term, it'll cost you less, because there's a lot of crap you got to do to make these military trailers work with civilian vehicles, and I personally just don't think that it's worth the effort. I really don't, um, and I worked on a lot of them. I worked on a lot of them, and I know a lot of the stuff that happens to them. I remember a friend of mine almost took his eyeball out trying to get a, uh, a cotter pin off a brake cable on one of them. And on another one, same guy gave himself a concussion with a crescent wrench trying to get the lid off the master cylinder. He had two feet up on the frame of the damn thing. It hadn't been opened in so long, and he was pulling with all he might, and he hit himself right smack between the eyes with a crescent wrench, knocked himself plumb out. Uh, they're difficult vehicles or difficult trailers to work on, and there's just better options. Uh, next up, I have a final question here for Expert Council. This one for Erica Strauss on dehydrating mushrooms. Hello, TSP. Erica here calling in to answer Craig's question about how to dry and store mushrooms. Well, Craig, you are in luck. Mushrooms are very easy to dry. They dry very successfully. There's a couple of ways to go about drying them. Um, I live in a very wet, damp climate, so I've only personally dried mushrooms in a food dehydrator, and that works very well. Um, if, so if you have a food dehydrator, use it with your mushrooms. If you don't have a food dehydrator, there are some other options, um, including oven drying, fan drying. If you live in the right kind of climate, you can even try sun drying. I'll talk about each of those in a minute. But for now, let's just cover the basic steps for how you dry your mushroom. 
Um, step, let's, let's call this step zero since it's not a real step, but you do need to know about it. Okay. So step zero, not all mushrooms should be dried. I mean, I assume you're already confident that your mushrooms are fully edible or otherwise safe for your particular use. So that's a given, but you only want to dry mushrooms that are in youthful, fresh picked condition. You know how a lot of mushrooms, there's a point where they're not just picked, but they're not decomposing and slimy. They're just kind of in between. You can see the discoloration around the edges and maybe the area between the gills is starting to break down a little bit. You can still use mushrooms in those conditions for something like a soup or a saute, but you you really don't want to dry them. The drying process just isn't going to halt or turn back that decay process. So that just maybe starting to break down stage with mushrooms, which you can work around for fresh eating, is just too far gone for drying them. And, but that said, a mushroom that is still really, really fresh, but maybe has a little cosmetic damage, it's just not perfect, it's got a little slug damage or bug damage, that is a great option to dry. So they don't have to be super pretty, but they do have to be in their sort of youthful prime. Okay, onward. Step one in drying mushrooms. Clean them. Yes, you can use water to clean mushrooms. Contrary to popular belief, they will not swell up and absorb gallons of water like a dry sponge if they get wet. The amount of water a fresh mushroom absorbs from a quick rinse just to clean out is really trivial. So ignore the old wives' tales, fill a big bowl with cool water, slosh your mushrooms around to get out the grit, and then lift your mushrooms out of the rinse water and set them on a kitchen towel or a couple layers of paper towel to drain off. Step two, slice your mushrooms. If we're talking mushrooms that are about the proportions of like a standard white button mushroom, slices about a quarter inch or a little bit thicker are perfect. If you have hollow mushrooms like morels, you can just slice them in half. Anything really big and meaty like a portobello or a lobster mushroom, I would slice that into quarter inch slices and then cut the slices in half or in quarters just to make more manageable size pieces. If you have something like oyster mushrooms, um, you know, growing in these lovely thin layers, I just sort of peel the caps apart. So you get the general idea here, right? You just take your mushrooms and you get them in a shape that's fairly thin and fairly uniform for good drying. Now, step three is the actual dehydration. As with all dried food, you don't want any kind of overlap in the layers that you're drying. So single layer, spread it out, give your shrooms their room. Now, let's assume you took my advice and you have a food dehydrator. You spread your slices or your pieces or your halves of mushroom on your trays and you just plug your dehydrator in and set that puppy as low as it will go. From sort of a food preservation, nutrient preservation standpoint, think of mushrooms as more like herbs than like beef jerky. You really want to dry them out completely while exposing them to as little heat as possible. So if your dehydrator runs as low as 95 or 100 degrees Fahrenheit, that's the temperature you should use. I've worked with food dehydrators that have a minimum temperature of like 125 degrees. And if that's as low as your machine will go, that's fine. Use that. Just try to stay as cool as possible on the temperature for your dehydrated mushrooms. Okay, so let's talk about those alternate drying methods I mentioned. If you're getting the impression that lower drying temp is better, you are right. And that 
and plus what I see is sort of excessive fuel use is one reason why oven drying just isn't my favorite. But if you want to try oven drying your mushrooms, you would spread them out on a cooling rack set over a sheet pan and pop that into your oven set as low as it will go. If your oven will heat as low as 150 degrees Fahrenheit, um, you've got a good chance of turning out a really nice dried mushroom product. You just want to rotate your mushrooms a bunch to keep them drying evenly and open the oven door frequently to release build up moisture and excess heat. If you have a convection setting in your oven, which turns a fan on, um, even though convection sort of, you know, makes the oven hotter, as they say, um, I would use the fan just to help get excess moisture out of your oven, and I would crack the door. Um, in situations where I've used oven drying, having that convection fan on and the door cracked open does really help the quality of the product. Now, if your oven will only click on at like 200, honestly, please just save everyone a bunch of heartache and find a dehydrator at the thrift store or something, or maybe look into plans for building a solar dehydrator. Other options are fan and sun drying. Both these methods work far better if you live in a very dry climate. So if you live in the kind of place where you can, you know, towel off after a shower and then hang your towel up and come back half an hour later and your towel is perfectly bone dry, well, great. You probably live in the kind of arid climate where sun or fan drying will work very well for you. Now, if that is you, you can prep and slice up the mushrooms just like we discussed earlier. Lay your mushroom slices out on a, on a drying rack and then set up a fan and just run the fan over the mushroom pieces for several hours, even up to several days, flipping the mushroom slices periodically. Or you can put those sliced mushrooms someplace with a good breeze out of direct sun and again, keep them flipped and rotated as often as needed. I've heard of some folks who string whole mushrooms up to sun dry, kind of like um, you would do for green beans. Like, you know how you put the string through the green beans and hang them up over the old wood stove? It's kind of like a grandma thing. Um, if I were going to try drying whole mushrooms in the sun, that's only something I would do if I was in a very, very arid climate. In my climate, for example, those mushrooms would almost certainly rot before they fully dried. So um, do... Use these alternate methods if your climate allows it. Now, if you want to get more in-depth info about alternate methods of getting your food dry, just, you know, hit me up with questions about your particular drying setup in the show notes for today's podcast, and I'll try and give more personal answers. But those are the general overview methods. And again, two thumbs up for the food dehydrator. Makes it really easy. So whatever method you pick to physically dry your mushrooms, step four is the same, and that's knowing when your mushrooms are done. You want to dry your mushrooms until they are shatteringly crisp. Um, sometimes you'll hear the drying standard for fruit, like plums or apples, described as leathery. With mushrooms, you want way past leathery. You want to be able to take a dried slice of mushroom between you know your two fingers and just snap it like a dead twig. So really shatteringly dry is what we want here. So depending on your dehydrator, um, depending on your setup, this could take six hours. It could take 24 hours. It could take a couple days if you're doing you know a sun-dried setup. Just don't rush whatever you do. With drying mushrooms, slow and steady wins the race. Just check on them periodically, and when they hit that shatteringly crisp stage, you'll know they're done. Now, Craig asks, once you have your mushrooms dry, what are the best ways to store dried mushrooms for the long term, and what kind of shelf life can he expect? Well, with dried mushrooms, your enemies with storage are insects, heat, oxygen, and light. 
And if you did your job properly and dried your mushrooms really well, no insect eggs should be viable in your mushrooms. But if you want to be double safe, you can pop your fully dried mushrooms into the freezer, you know, put them like in a jar or a bag or something, and then put them in the freezer for three days. That'll kill any tiny eggs that might be in your mushrooms. Um, this is kind of a good idea with home dried food anyway, um, if you're concerned about insect infestation. And then, you know, you just keep the mushrooms sealed really well so nothing can get into them in their dried form. And that's really all you need to do to guard against insect issues. So for the more mundane stuff, the light, heat, and oxygen issues, honestly, dried mushrooms keep beautifully without a lot of extra work. You could just throw your fully dried mushrooms in a glass jar, put on a good fitting lid, like a mason jar lid, pop that in a cupboard somewhere, and you'd be fine for a couple of years. You get those suckers really fully dry, and they will just keep as they are in a basic mason jar, um, I'd say for at least two years. You might see a little flavor loss over time, but that would be the end of it. Now, if you are in it for the really long haul with your mushrooms, or if you are particularly interested in preserving the full flavor or medical or other qualities of your mushrooms, you can go a step further. If you store your dried mushrooms in a way that will um, you know, additionally exclude oxygen and light, including using a vacuum sealer on a mason jar or popping your mushrooms in a mylar bag and sealing with an O2 absorber, then you're looking at a reliable shelf life of probably, probably five years. And honestly, in properly sealed mylar with an O2 absorber, I'd expect good condition dried mushrooms for longer than that. If you exclude oxygen and light and then you further freeze your dried mushrooms, then the shelf life is going to become as close to forever as a real food product is probably going to get. So, for example, let's say you package your your thoroughly dried mushrooms in a mylar bag with an oxygen absorber, and then, you know, you let everything seal in so your mylar sort of shrink wraps down around your mushrooms, and then you pop your little mushroom astronaut package in the freezer at zero degrees Fahrenheit. If I were a betting gal, I would guess that you could open up that package 10 years later and rehydrate your mushrooms and be perfectly happy with their condition. Now, the longest I've personally kept my home-dried mushrooms was around three years, but that was just in a big mason jar in my pantry, and they did fine just like that. So bottom line is storage is dried mushrooms are very well adapted to long-term storage, um, but the more you can do to protect your mushrooms from oxygen, from light, from temperature swings, the more they will reward you with even extra longevity of storage. Now, once you want to use your dried mushrooms, that's where it gets really fun. So some of you may know that I used to charge people good money to cook their food back in the day. Well, one of my signature dishes when I did catering was a dried shiitake crusted beef tenderloin. And the idea behind this dish is you take really flavorful dried mushrooms, shiitakes are good, but you can use other ones, and then you blitz them in the food processor to make a powder. And you you take a good steak. Tenderloin is nice because it's an easy shape to work with and it's tender but not the most flavorful steak. And you coat the steak in salt and this mushroom powder. Mushrooms contain a lot of like natural MSG, basically. Um, you guys know people complain about MSG in Chinese food. They say it gives them headaches or whatever. Well, MSG is like it's a flavor enhancer. It brings out the flavor of other foods. And mushrooms are just full of the sort of natural equivalent of this. So you coat a steak with a bit of salt, 
and then you crust this mushroom powder on the meat and you sear off everything and you just get one really meaty tasting piece of meat, if you know what I mean, because of all the flavor enhancing quality of that dried mushroom powder. So that's one of my personal favorites for using dried mushrooms. But other than that, uh, dried mushrooms just rehydrate really wonderfully. So for soups or stews or sauces or anything with a lot of added liquid, the dried mushrooms can just be slipped right into um, whatever the sort of simmering liquid component is of your dish. And you can use them like that. And that's nice because they release a lot of that mushroom quality into your soup or your stew, and they also absorb a lot of the flavor from the other things. So it, it works really well. But I will caution you that if you're unsure about how clean your dried mushrooms are, it's a good idea to rehydrate them separately first and then add the rehydrated mushrooms to your dish. And the reason for this is that the rehydrating will help clean any grit from the mushrooms and will fall to the bottom of the bowl that you're using to rehydrate. And then, of course, if you're thinking about using dried mushrooms in something like a casserole, you would always want to rehydrate first and then just use the rehydrated mushrooms in the dish just as you would use fresh mushrooms. If you rehydrate your mushrooms in tepid to slightly warm water, it usually takes about 30 minutes to an hour to get the mushroom slices really soft. And the liquid from that hydration step is itself very flavorful. So I would recommend you save it, strain it to catch any grit that might have fallen from your mushrooms, and then use it to add additional flavor to your soups or sauces or bray. You can use it to cook rice in, um, just any, any place where you need like a little extra flavor. Mushroom broth is brilliant as a vegetarian substitute for beef broth. Um, and when I was catering, I modified many meaty dishes to be more vegetarian friendly by simply substituting mushroom broth for beef broth. So on Honestly, even if you aren't a vegetarian, do consider mushroom broth as kind of a meaty flavor surrogate for beef broth and don't waste it. Well, Craig and the rest of my friends out there in TSP land, I'm pretty well out of time here. Um, I hope this has given you what you need to go forth and dehydrate and store your mushrooms with confidence. Um, so I'll just say, you know, this has been Erica for the Expert Council. And if you like the kind of stuff I talk about here on TSB, why not check out my book? It's called The Hands-On Home, and you can find it on Amazon through Jack's T-SPAS link. Read reviews. See if it would make a good addition to your collection. All right, friends, that's my time for this week. Thanks very much for all your questions. Please do keep them coming, and I will chat with you guys in a couple of weeks. So the only thing that I'll add is a lot of things, when you dehydrate them, their quality's not quite what it was before you did. And in some cases, I would agree with that on mushrooms, but in many cases, I would say that dehydrating mushrooms can actually improve quality. And I don't think there's a mushroom that that's more true, true of than oyster mushrooms. Oyster mushrooms, when they're fresh, are fine, but they... Uh, They don't tend to have a lot of flavor, and they don't tend to have a lot of body. When you take a dehydrated oyster mushroom, rehydrate it, and then slice it, and then cook it, it has a little bit more chewiness to it and all, and I find that to be pretty outstanding. And I find dehydrated shiitakes to be a pretty damn good thing, too. So definitely a skill to develop and learn the dehydration and the use of the dehydrated mushroom. Anyway, so the question for me was on jug fishing for catfish and kind of just, you know, what do I think about it? What are the ins and outs of it? So first of all, just like with the Amazon item of the day yesterday, I said if you have any doubt, call your local warden and ask them, uh, and they'll be happy to, to again, I, I want to say that I, I, 
I've dealt with a lot of different law enforcement people over the years. Not usually, not usually from some sort of a, a contact that's that's you know initiated by them. More, I've reached out to them for things and or asked them questions or whatever. And and most guys in law enforcement are decent guys. They really are and, and are helpful when they when they can be. But I found certain truisms to be like large city departments generally less so than smaller city departments. Uh, and those are generally less so than county level officers. Sheriff's officers seem to be kind of the most laid back day to day officers that everybody deals with. That I've personally, I could be wrong, but you know, and, and come on, I, I have a pretty high standard for law enforcement officers. Uh, I grew up in, in Pennsylvania in a township with one police officer. His name was Jack Harley and, and he knew our family personally and he policed an entire township and did a good job of it, and he was very personable. And that's kind of, like, I hold people to the Officer Harley standard. Um, so temper that. But the 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 Tarrant County Sheriff's deputies I, I speak to that patrol this area, they're fantastic. They're absolutely fantastic. The lakeside cops, little town down the road that have a bunch of cops for the number of people, all those dudes do is write speeding tickets nonstop. they got a budget line item on the city website for tickets. I mean, Go figure. So it, it all varies, because usually small towns are, are better. Um, but when it comes to law enforcement that are abundantly helpful to the point of giving you advice, uh, most, I've dealt with one game warden in my life, was a dick, but most game wardens, fish wardens, etc., very good guys. So if you have any doubt about anything, I'm going to tell you whether or not it's okay in your state, look up the local uh, game warden, fish warden uh, office for your area, and call them and say, I would like to do this, is that okay, or are there any special considerations I need to know about? And if they tell you it's illegal, it's freaking illegal, because that's the guy that's going to write you the ticket. All right? Because the sheriff's department or the uh, city police or whatever, I, 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 maybe it happens somewhere, I don't know anywhere where those guys enforce fishing game laws. Maybe boating laws or whatever, but I've never, never, I've had cops walk up when you're fishing, catch anything? No. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, they don't even ask. They don't even concern themselves with whether you're legally fishing or not. So I just kind of temper that there. So um, jug fishing. I say all that because some places this is not okay. It's, it's completely illegal. In other places it's legal. In other places there's standards. <clears throat> In Texas, there are two types of jug fishing you can do. There's actually commercial freshwater fishing in Texas. If you're using commercial jugs, they have to be orange. And if you're using non-commercial, using your regular residential fishing license, they have to be white. Okay? They have to have a gear tag on them. And that gear tag has to say who you are, how to contact you, and have the date the jug was placed because they have to be checked every 24 hours, and that date needs to be updated. I've never left a jug that long, but that's the rules here. Okay? Um... There's a limit to how many hooks you can have on a jug line. I don't know what it is because I don't care. I use one hook per jug because I don't want a large cat pulling another hook into my wrist and yanking me out of the boat or causing me permanent nerve damage, which I've seen happen to somebody with a hook drug into their hand. Okay? So, but you, if you want to do more, you need to know what it is. And there's a limit to how many jugs you can put out. You need to find out what that is for you. Uh, frequency of checking them, gear tags, color, and then... There are some bodies of water where jug fishing is not legal, even though it's legal in your state. A lot of times there's like small, what they call community fishing spots in Texas. These are all your municipal park ponds and stuff like that. 
jug fishing in, in those situations and some other locations is not legal. So you got to determine legality. Now, there's a couple different ways to do this. The old school way, and you know, this is probably why white's the color. Standard milk jug, make sure the lid's secure, you tie off your string to the handle, and you use something as a weight. What most people use as a weight is a, is a half of a brick. A standard brick with holes in it, like you can get at Home Depot or find for free all over the place. Some people use a rock. Some people use whatever they can find. Do you know what I use? I use a one-pound dumbbell because there's a company here called Academy Sports and Outdoors, and they're like a dollar a piece, and they'll last forever. And they're small and compact and very dense for their size, and I don't use the milk jug, so I'll get to what I use in a second. And what people think is that you need a heavy weight because the fish fights the, the weight. The fish doesn't fight the weight. The weight holds the jug where you want it, and the fish fights the jug. And that jug doesn't have to be that big, even if it's a big fish, because the fish gets tired and the jug doesn't. The jug just keeps being buoyant. So you might find your jugs moved a little bit, but they're not going very far, even with rather large fish. Okay, So we find our locations that we want to fish in. I use tarred bank line, which I'm a huge fan of. I tie above the, the weight, generally about a foot above the weight, because even if your, your line's longer than you anticipated, your jug's going to find its, 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 its point, and it's going to hold that bait suspended off the ground. And I tie a dropper loop, which is basically an overhand loop, you can look it up, that, that causes the, the, the loop to sit offset. Onto that loop, I attach a split ring, a heavy split ring. That split ring goes around a swivel, and to that, and, to, and then I use a, a a snelled hook, and I generally use just a standard J hook with a and I, I do my own snells for this because I use heavier line than you get when you get by like pre snelled hooks. And instead of a snell, really, it's a hook with a with a snap swivel, a heavy snap swivel on it. And I take that snap swivel and I connect it to the swivel that's on the standoff. That gets you a nice standoff so that it doesn't get hooked up on the line itself. When the fish takes it and moves off, he pulls against the weight of the bottom weight and against the jug weight and the hook just embeds in his mouth. No treble hooks. Again, you're asking for trouble for yourself. And I don't use circles or kales, even though they're very good at hooking fish. In a situation like that, fish are good at throwing them. So standard J-hook right for the size of your fish. What do I use for bait? I usually use small perch or shad for catfish. There's a lot of other things you can use. Hot dogs work too, but a lot of that's going to get picked off. Um, live shad is great. It's going to die, but it's going to stay on better than frozen shad for you. Um, but probably the best bait is small perch because they're really durable compared to a shad. Shad gets soft after a while. And uh, I put them out hot. Like I said, hot dogs work too. And you put them out where you want them. Keep an eye on them. When you decide to run your line, you run your lines. You check them. This is my method and why I use my method. I'll have, if I'm doing this in a boat, if I have 20 jugs out there, I'll have 10 snell hooks with new bait sitting in a bucket. I go out and I check a jug. That jug has a fish on it. I'll pull that fish up to the boat. I undo the snap swivel. Hook and all, fish goes into the bucket, the live well, the cooler, whatever it is. I'll get the hook back later. Pick up one of the pre-baited snell hooks, 
drop it on the snap swivel, redeploy the jug. I'm not gonna get I'm not gonna get hooked. I'm not gonna get into any kind of mess with the fish in the boat while I'm trying to do all this other stuff. I got lines everywhere and trolling motors going. And God, this is easier with two people. One guy running the boat, one guy wanting the jugs. You go to the next jug, you do it again. You get there, that jug, you pull the line up. It needs bait, but there's no fish. We do not pull one of our pre-baited hooks. We grab a piece of bait, bait goes on the hook, jug goes back in the water. Go to the next one, pull it up, bait's still on the jug, throw it back in. And we just follow that pattern till we get to the end. Now, we go take a break. We pull our fish out of the live well cooler or whatever. We get our pliers out. We, we unhook the hooks. We set them up with new bait. Set our fish in our, our thing, and we run our lines again. It's, it's, it's a very almost commercial level of production. And the limit in Texas on blues and channel cats is 25 combined per fisherman. So if it's two guys, you can take 50 fish this way. And you generally take larger fish like this. Jugs have a lot more patience than you do. Now, my jugs, what I actually do when I make my own jugs. I don't use milk jugs. I use swim noodles. And I buy white swim noodles. And if you can't get white swim noodles, buy white duct tape. And you wrap white duct tape around them, now they're white. If you have that requirement. I take a piece of PVC pipe. I shove it through the uh, swim noodle. That PVC pipe is twice the length of the noodle. And the noodle's about a foot, so it's about a two-foot piece of pipe. Into that piece of pipe, I put in a, about a one-foot piece of rebar. I put it in there. And then I take PVC cement and two caps, and I cap both ends of the pipe. Some of you know where this is going. I tie my, uh, my line, my tarred bank line, onto the bottom. And you've got a cap there to stop it, so it's great. The bottom of the pipe... And then I take the line and I wrap it around my jug. And I usually have about 25 feet of line. And I have that, that weight attached with a snap swivel. Okay? And I have that dropper loop and that, that, that split ring sitting right there ready to be hooked up to with a swivel. Okay? For my snow hooks. You get milk crates. You roll up your things. There's no hooks on them. You take a big rubber band, a big heavy-duty rubber band, you put it around your line to keep your line minded, and nine of them fit like freaking a glove in a milk crate. And then you have another little bag, little canvas bag, that has your nine, um, uh, what do you call them, dumbbells in it. You have your pipe sticking up. Maybe you do two, maybe three sets of those, and you'd have one bag for all your weights because they're all the same. The weights have a little piece of... Uh, uh, Card bank line on them, also with a snap swivel. That means when you're deploying your jugs, you pull a weight out, you clip it on, close your snap swivel, and you spool it out. You put your bait on, spool it out, and you, you take that rubber band and you just move it up. When you hit bottom, you let another maybe foot or two out, and then you take that rubber band and you put it back around your string. Doesn't matter if the fish pulls it out. It'll hold your jug there so you're, you're not in you know six, 16 feet of water with 25 feet of line out, which wouldn't be that bad. But maybe you're in six feet of water with 25 feet of line out. That's probably not good. So that rubber band holds it right there. The fish will set the hook, start dragging, fighting, whatever. You're not going to lose a fish. You know, I mean, if you lose a fish and got off the hook, it's not going to pull the jug away. It's not going to happen. Now, why the rebar? We take the jug, and when the jug is ready to be set, we tilt it till the rebar sets about in the center of that pipe. We set it down, the jug lays flat. When a fish takes it and pulls it down on the one side, 
the rebar falls to the bottom and the jug stands up. It's called a flagging jug. So you can like be camping somewhere where you can, where it's legal to do this. Pick out a place from your campsite where you can see, you know, where it's good catfish territory. Go deploy all your jugs. Come back, sit on the beach, have a beer, start up the grill, and watch. And you watch, you can take your binoculars out and watch. There's a jug flag, there's a jug flag. And when there's enough flag to make it worth, it worth your time, you jump in the boat, you go run your lines just like I said. It's one of the coolest ways to fish that there is. And uh, I'm probably going to get a boat this spring. I'm going to become a boat owner again. And uh, I'll probably be doing a lot of it because it, it is an awesome way to fish. And it's a very pleasurable way to fish. And the way I used to do it, actually, is I would set jug lines and I would go fish for sand bass for an hour and I'd go check my jugs. And then I would go fish for sand bass for an hour and I'd check my jugs. And in and, and doing that, um, you know, I've gone home with limits of both uh, in just a few hours on the lake. And it's a very cost-effective way because things get reused. Very seldom jug fishing do you even lose a hook. Eventually, you might have to replace the line. But I know that sounds a little complicated, but if you just think about the way I described it, it's really not. It's easy to do, but you want swivels because when that catfish gets on a jug, the first thing it's going to start doing is spinning like an alligator. And if you don't have swivels on your jug lines, you will be an unhappy jug fisher. All right? So hopefully that was a good lesson in jug line fishing. All right, so with that, let's uh, go ahead and remind you, if you want to support this show, one way you can do that is by going to tspaz.com whenever you want to shop on Amazon. T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. Easy to remember. It's easy as, it's easy as to remember it as to remember Amazon, right? T-Spaz, you click a link there, you go to Amazon, you buy your stuff. Nothing more than that. You've helped us. A great deal. A great deal. It doesn't cost you any more. There's no jack surcharge or something like that. We just get credit as the affiliate for the sale, no matter what you buy, as long as you click the link first. And we always put up an item of the day for, for review for you guys. I got a good one for you today. I realized I had not given you guys a really good charger for your car, uh, for your cell phones. And, and the part of why I haven't done it is almost everything works okay. But I have one that I love. First of all, the company I love, it's called Anchor, A-N-K-E-R. And I've put up my favorite uh, backup battery pack of all time. It'll charge an iPhone 6 or an iPhone 7 10 times from one charge. And it's not very big. And Anchor makes that. <clears throat> and it was my first experience with Anchor. And actually, I had a problem with the product I got from them. So I contacted their support. They were freaking fantastic. We're so sorry. Here's a new one. Okay. And it worked just fine. And this is the thing about companies. No company can promise that everything that they send out will be good. Sometimes it gets damaged by idiots in the postal service. Those of you who seen the video of the Lone Star Overnight package that I put out that they threw in the mud puddle, right? I can't blame the manufacturer of the equipment for that. But what a company can do is say when it's our fault, we'll fix it and always live up to it. Anchor does that. And then this product's like a $9 product. It's a fast charger. And it's done through two ways. There's a fast charge technology that, that some devices are supported with and some aren't. I don't even care. It's a 24-watt dual charger. Most of the stuff that you buy in the stores is between 5 and 15 watts. That just tells you when you have 25 watts um, charging uh, at like 4.8 amps, then you are going to get a much faster charge. In my case, using this versus a, a standard kind of everyday off-the-shelf one, my iPhone charges about twice as fast. That's, that's awesome. Here's what's really awesome. 
It's so damn small and compact. It doesn't take. It's like this big honking thing on the face of your your vehicle, like so many of them are. Very very well built. Nine bucks. If you and it has two ports. Whenever you see these chargers, one thing you should understand is uh, both ports are not equal. Anyway, it's it's a really great tool. It's a very affordable thing, and I, I want to kind of just end with my rules. And these are kind of me and Stephen Harris have the same group of rules on your cell phone for preparedness. Rule one, you don't let your cell phone go dead. In fact, you keep it fully charged all the time. When you're home, you plug it in. When you're in your car, you plug it in. Wherever you go, you plug it into something, okay? Rule two, <clears throat> have multiple ways to charge your phone, especially in your vehicle. Rule three, you don't let your cell phone go dead. In fact, you keep it fully charged at all the times. When you're home, you plug it in. When you're in the car, you plug it in. Wherever you go, if there's a place to plug it in, you plug it in. You notice that rule one and rule three are identical, and rule two basically enables rule one and rule two, or rule three. Um, That's the rules. That's why we're not big. Neither one of us are big on, you know, hand crank radios that charge cell phones and all that kind of crap. If you do the things that we teach you, the last problem you'll ever have is no power for your cell phone. It'll be the very last problem that you have, and you'll have bigger things to worry about than that if you're in that kind of a situation. Anyway, with that, let's talk about the song of the day today. As I said, um, 1955, and there's, there's, there's precursors to this. <clears throat> But this is the year that rock and roll really enters America. And not a, not the rock that you think, if you're like an 80s kid and you think of like, you know, rock from the 80s or something like that. But rock and roll, the genesis of rock and roll in America. And uh, the song uh, that is number one for 1955 is Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and his Comets. And there's some other things starting to happen here. Um, I said the other day that, you know, when we talked about somebody so-and-so in his orchestra, that the days of that are sort of ebbing out. And you're seeing it cross over a little bit with things like, you know, calling something like Bill Haley and his Comets. But, you, you know, if, if that band was made today, it would like be like, be like Bill Haley and the Comets. That whole hit, like the, the front man owning the show, that's kind of devolving into more of what we think of as traditional music groups today. This song is is widely known, I think, today among people my age and younger because if you were an 80s kid, then there was Happy Days. <clears throat> and, of course, this song was the theme song of Happy Days. It came on at the beginning of, of Happy Days all the time. And that kind of gave it a resurgence. And it kind of synonymously locked it in to that, you know, 50s era um mentality in, in, in pop culture in America, but it, it's, it's very much because that was the case. And you won't hear exclusively, you know, rock and roll be number one at the charts for the next 10 years, but you'll see it and its influence from here forward, uh, at least until we get up into the mid-90s where we're going to have to do something else because of what I said yesterday. But this was a great song. I mean, it really was. It didn't really even have any big impact as far as like its vocals or anything. It was just fun, but it embodied what rock and roll was. To be someone that could just have fun and enjoy themselves. <clears throat> and I'm sure there was a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth of these kids and their new crazy music going on at this time. And, and I always try to temper that when I look and I, I talk about the crap that we call music today and say, am I just being an old fart like those people were back in the 50s when their kids were at sock hops, hops you know, dancing to this, which is so tame and so moderate by comparison. And, and here's what I think. <clears throat> As a well-rounded person, I think no. I think today's music, not all of it, but by and large, and the most popular music of today is garbage. Because I can go back all the way to music from the 1930s 
And even if I don't particularly care for it, I understand it, I get it, and I can see something in it. And when I look at a song like Macarena, okay, or these 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 rap songs of today and, and what have you, I, I I just I don't get anything. I don't get anything. I don't find anything appealing. And I'm not even saying I don't like rap, but I'm not even saying all rap. Some rap I even get it, but the majority of the songs that if you look. And I get these these uh, songs from a place called Playback FM. You can go to Playback FM, and you can uh, look at the, the number one song for any day of the year, the day you were born, and the number one song for the year, things like that. When I hit about 1996, I gave up. I only went forward about five years. I couldn't find anything in the top ten that I'd be willing to play on, on the air. That's how shitty it gets. But I kind of feel like the heyday's coming. I had somebody today, the guy that pointed out that it was Macarena for 1996 uh, on the blog, chimed in today and said he's not looking forward to the to the disco era, the 70s, you know. And I, I posted a list in the comments of all of the number one hits from the 70s. How many number one hits in the 1970s, going 1970 all the way to 1980 to make it, you know, great to round out the decade, even going into the new decade. How many of those would you reckon are disco songs? And the answer is subjective. There's one that's definitely, and I bet you know what it is, Staying Alive. I think it was from 77. That's a disco song. Early in the 70s, there's a number one song called Kung Fu Fighting. I guess that's kind of a disco song. It's more of a funk, funk song, right? It really is. It's more of a soul and funk song, right? And it's a song that was fun, and I think most people liked it. If you were an 80s kid, you watched Kung Fu movies, you listened to that song, you play fight it with your friends. I'm telling you right now, if you're a 70s or 80s kid, you did that shit if you were a boy anyway. right? Do you consider Dancing Queen by ABBA a, a disco song? I certainly don't. Nothing else even comes close to disco. We got nothing. And we, got, we got some Pink Floyd in there. Um, we got some uh, Beatles in there. We got some George Harrison in there. You have to wait for all this. We get to it. But the 70s is going to be a pretty good time. I think the 60s is too. And so is the rest of the 50s. But it's Friday. And what a great, I mean, it's just happened by chance, right? But what a great song for a Friday. Friday is one of those happy days. So with that, you can rock around the clock. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. What is that right so
Jack's 12-wheel 